Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Houston, Texas and the Hotel Alessandra. In the interest of full disclosure, I love Houston. I used to live here back in the 70s when I was working as a correspondent for Newsweek. A completely different experience that I'm having today, trust me. And a remarkable transformation of a city that most of you have not been to and you might need to come. It is not a cultural wasteland by any means. It has turned itself around, not to mention great sports teams, great museums, great music venues. And we'll be talking about all of that throughout the show. One thing that, that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, getting more and more people every year, is the Space Center here. And joining me now, the president and CEO of Space Center Houston, William Harris. How are you, sir? I'm great, thanks. Good morning. I mean, hard to believe, okay, this is this is the point of the show where I date myself, but hard to believe we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Americans landing on the moon, Neil Armstrong, July 20th, 1969. That is correct. We are so excited to be celebrating this amazing anniversary of the moon landing 
And uh, we have a lot going on here in Houston, and we're coordinating a lot of things across the nation as well to celebrate this, but also around the world, because this was an achievement for humankind, not only for the United States. But it also put Houston on the map, if you will. I mean, when that, you know, we all remember the, the line, Houston, we have a problem, but that wasn't about the moon landing. No. That was about another Apollo shot. Exactly. And those actually were not the exact words iterated, but... What were they? um, Come on. (laughs) Correct the record. What were they? Uh, They were actually... They went through a whole series of things, and it was kind of over time that that phrase emerged as... uh, Well, it's now part of the popular culture. Yeah, it absolutely is. But the most important one are are really the the words iterated by Neil Armstrong. You know, when um, they landed on the moon, and it was about uh, central time, um, uh, about 3.18 p.m., and then, uh, actually, it was when they were supposed to go to sleep, once they landed on the moon. That's, that's what they were supposed to do for a little while. And of course, they were too you, excited, too excited to, to do, do that. that. Yeah. yeah, so they ended up suiting up and uh, taking the first steps on the moon at about 9.58 p.m. that evening. And, of course, the whole world was holding their breaths. They had no idea what the experience was going to be like when they first stepped on the surface of the moon. And I remember watching that on television at my parents' summer home. It was July. Uh, and there was a delay, right? I mean, remember, they're sending the signal from space, from the moon. Mm-hmm. And we're just wait- do they have signal? Do they have signal? Do they have signal? And then all of a sudden, there it was, right? And yes. you saw him essentially sort of like, it looked like he was hopping. But he actually did the step down. Yes. Actually, it took longer. You saw kind of a, a delayed version and an edited version. But uh, we're actually going to be running the real tape uh, in the restored mission operations control room at uh, Johnson Space Center. But when they first landed, they weren't really sure what was going to happen, if the lander was going to sink into the soil or not. Um, when Neil stepped down the stairs, he held on. He first put his toe down like you're tipping your toe into a pool. He began moving it around. He started describing it, saying, OK, there's only about a 1 18th inch penetration of dust. It seems firm underneath. And so he was testing it out, and then he held on tight, and he lowered down and made the first step, and he described how far his boot penetrated into the soil. And then actually before he stepped away from the uh, the, the lunar module, module, he actually tethered himself because he had no idea when he stepped away if the soil would give way beneath him. He had to hold so, on to something, yeah. So the whole process actually took a little bit longer. He didn't just jump off the stairs out of the surface of the moon. But when did he actually say those words? It was when he planted the flag? or, or? No, it was actually actually after he made the first full step onto the surface of the moon. He said one, one, step, one great step for man one great step no one small step one small step for man hey you're running the space center come on it's one small small step step for man man, one one giant step for mankind yes or one giant leap one giant leap for mankind mankind. wow yes and that plaque that placard's still there yes yes it was planted on the surface of the moon the flag at this point probably from the sun is totally white it's probably not still it's been bleached out it's been bleached out yeah because there's no atmosphere to protect it but there's a plaque yes that's still there yes that and we know exactly where it is yes anybody going back there to check it out We'll see. Actually, there's a lot of discussion about making that um, kind of a uh, solar system or galaxy world heritage site and for it not to be disturbed. So uh, we will see over time. I, I don't know for sure what will happen, but uh, there is a lot of discussion that not to, for that site not to be disturbed. Yeah, amazing. So when I go to the Space Center, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm a kid at heart. I love museums that are interactive that allow me to actually understand what I'm doing because I get a chance to do it. Where do we get the chance to do there? Oh, my gosh. We have so many great experiences at Space Center Houston. We have over 400 exhibits, uh, many of them interactive. Of course, we represent the history of the space program, so you can <clears throat> look look at the origin of uh, you know, the, the Gemini program, of course, Mercury, Redstone, and, and Apollo. We have real capsules and activities. But By the way, been I've been in those capsules, I have to tell you. You need an industrial-strength spa- spatula to get into those capsules. <laughs> yes. I mean, imagine yourself wearing... A spacesuit, and then getting in the, the like the Mercury. Sp- I mean, I've done that at Smithsonian back in D.C. Mm-hmm. 
small. Yes. Unbelievably small. Well, everything was created for efficiencies, right? So, you know, Mercury Redstone was to test out, you know, a single astronaut, Gemini 2, Apollo 3. And what's interesting is the next generation capsules that are being developed right now, uh, the SpaceX crew module will have a capacity for up to seven, and the, the Boeing Starliner up to five. Um, yeah, but they make you pay for check baggage. I'll talk to you about that. <laughs> Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Some of you have noticed, I used to live in Houston. I was here many years ago as a correspondent for Newsweek, covering, I mean, imagine this kid from New York with a ponytail driving a VW bus, covering Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Talk about an eye-opening experience way back then, and believe me, it was. It was amazing for me. I learned so much. I, 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 and if you can't find great stories to cover in Texas, you're, you're, you're just not good, because the stories here are better than ever. You want great crime? They've got it. You want great, you want great politics? They got it. I mean, I go back to the days of like Dolph Briscoe when he was governor, and uh, you couldn't you couldn't make this stuff up. So I always like coming back to Houston, especially now because when I was here, and my next guest is going to talk about that. When I was here, there wasn't much to eat. I mean, I. I I was stuck at a coffee shop, or I'd have to go out into the neighborhoods to try to find barbecue, um, and they, they, had, they had a couple of, you know, steak and rib places. That was it. Today, over the last, let's really, over the last 10 years, uh, Houston has exploded in the food scene. It's cutting-edge restaurants, cutting-edge chefs, cutting-edge cuisine, and, and it just is on a par with everywhere else that considers themselves a gastronomic capital of the world, which you never would have picked Houston to be, but it is, and the person who knows all about that is my next guest. He's the food editor of the Houston Chronicle. Greg Morago, how are you, sir? I'm very well. I thank you for being here and, and shining a light on, on Houston food scene. But it's true. I mean, when, when you see, I mean, first of all, people don't understand. Houston, I, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin. Houston almost has the same uh, uh, record because people fly over it. They don't understand. They'll, they'll tell you what, they, they've been to Houston because they changed the United flight or an old Continental flight at the airport. That's not Houston. <laughs> no. And, and yeah. by the way, you used to fly over it too until you moved here because <laughs> yes. you were at the Hartford Current well, for what, 20? 25 years. Yeah. And so I think I had the same experience you did, which is um, coming here from the East Coast and I, I sort of felt like Houston was, I didn't know what to expect of, uh, of the city when when I moved here. You Yankee. And, uh, yeah, right. And so, and I, but I didn't have a ponytail, so I came <laughs> <laughs> so, um, knowing that the city was a, a great growing city, but not much about the food culture. And, and so the thing you said about stories are everywhere. I found that straight away when I moved here is that there are a million stories to tell about the food scene here. And it's a growing food scene. And I, and I'm just glad that your people like you are recognizing. Well, that. you heard my introduction. You know, it's no longer just barbecue or, or if you'll excuse the expression, bad Tex-Mex. It's changed. It's changed, but those two um, food groups are still very much in play in the in the, in the Houston food scene. As they should be. They they should be in there and and legacy restaurants that uh, one of the things that I think that is is so cool about trend wise that's going on here is 
um, barbecue, and we've had we've had an explosion in the last six years of um, craft barbecue. And um, most people think that oh, you can the only good barbecue you have to go to Central Texas and the Austin no, area. No, it's not true. And Central Texas style barbecue is very much alive here in, in Houston, and we have terrific restaurants, and they're getting great recognition. But, so, but when you think about all the the various incarnations of of the new wave of food here, I mean, twenty years ago, ten years ago, you would not have had Vietnamese Cajun crawfish on the menu. No, and that I'm so glad that you brought that up because we just had um, the James Beard semifinalist nominations last week, and one of the restaurants that uh, that was recognized as chef for best chef Southwest on the on the long list is a man who owns a restaurant called Crawfish and Noodles, which is what many people consider one of the the best places to get Viet Cajun crawfish, which is if you don't know what that is, it's a <laughs> traditional crawfish yeah. boil that's Cajun style, and like it um, is in Louisiana. Mm-hmm, yeah, and then it's um, uh, bathed. That those crawfish are bathed in butter, garlic, spices, things like lemongrass and Thai basil by a Vietnamese um, chef, and so it's like. It's incredible. The flavors are incredible, but it just shows how, sort of that fusion culture, that melting pot culture that we have here on the food scene. And that's just one example of many of, of people who are taking um, traditional foods from the South or from Texas and sort of winding them through their own, you know, um, I don't want to say ethnic, but their own cultural filter. Well, you never would have found Nigerian food here. No, and it's a great city for Nigerian food. We did a story last year about the about the Nigerian community, and that, that, that's growing as well. But, I mean, things like, um, for instance, barbecue and Tex-Mex, they merge here in the, in the new craft uh, barbecue movement where you will have, you'll find be- beautiful brisket that's tucked inside of a tortilla made with rendered brisket fat and then slathered, not in barbecue sauce, but in salsa. Not bathed? Slathered? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just making sure we get the, like, the, the, the definitions right. <laughs> so things like that are really, are really exciting, and they play out every day. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is this. You have, you have a, a growing Chinatown. Growing Chinatown, and where you'll find terrific Chinese food and and Vietnamese food. I mean, this is a city that lives on pho. It can eat pho every day. So it's like... <laughs> All right, so having said that, Greg... What's the biggest surprise to you? You've been here like 10 years now. I think I, it's, it's just the biggest surprise is not that this food is happening here, but that it took so long for, I think, the national uh, food scene people to recognize what an extraordinary place this is to, to dine. And it's not dining. The James Beard um, nominations, for example, they used to um, only uh, – signify fine dining but now it, it I hate those two the, words I hate the, them with a passion <laughs> the breadth of dining in this city which can be something like a little mom and pop shop that can be nominated um, because they do something like Viet, uh, C- Cajun Viet, Viet Cajun crawfish so I, to me I just find that extraordinary and a great change in, the, in how people see food on the national food scene and the reason why I hate the, the words fine dining because people always whisper them We'd like you to see our fine dining restaurant. Like I want to eat in your crappy dining room. I mean, right? I mean, right. I mean, come on. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's a... That's a God, don't show me the alternative that. then, right? <laughs> right? But the cool thing is, it's not about fine dining. It's about the variety that you have here. The variety of dining. I'll give you another example. There is an Indian Pakistani restaurant here in town that excels at Indian and Pakistani food. But the chef... What's, what's the name? It's called Himalaya Restaurant. Yeah. And he just was on the semifinal list for James Beard. But he'll give you 
um, something like an etouffee that uh, is made with um, uh, curry spices, or he'll do a chicken fried steak, which is very Texan, but it's coated in, and not in a cream sauce, but a, a masala gravy. To think you have How to come all wonderful. the way to Houston to get a Himalayan etouffee. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? And people stuffing bon mi sandwiches, Vietnamese bon mi sandwiches with with Texan barbecue. So things like that happen. Houston is hot, now a melting pot. I love it. Greg Morago, thank you so much. Oh, From pleasure. the Houston Chronicle, you out of town are you? Didn't hear 10 years. <laughs> Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My next guest has another story to do with the name Houston. He's the author of Ship of Ghosts, the story of the USS Houston. FD, and, and, and it's an amazing story. He's also the author of a book that, I, that I'm that i just starting to read and love called The Fleet at Flood Tide. So we both have a, a, a love of, of Navy and history. And his name is uh, uh, Jim Hornfisher. How are you, sir? Thanks, Peter. I'm very well. Well, we're here in Houston talking about a, a, a ship that was really doomed, right? The USS Houston. The flagship of the Asiatic Fleet. USS Houston was a, a heavy cruiser. So these are the um, kind of the uh, uh, powerful... Uh, Warships, 10,000 tons, stout main battery that the fleet would use to project power around the world. And we're talking major big guns. These are 8-inch. So when you you refer to a gun by inches, you're talking about the diameter of the shell it fires. So an 8-inch shell is considerably powerful. You know, and th- so these ships were, you know, packed a wallop. And the Houston, you know, of, of her of her various class of sister ships, uh, had a, as you suggest, had a had a sort of a uh, rendezvous with destiny in the far Pacific as flagship of the Asiatic Fleet in 1941, when the war started. And what happened? And she was essentially, you know, cut off, as, as was famously MacArthur and the, you know, his 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 men on Bataan in the Philippines and Gregator yes. in the Philippines. And so they waged a holding action. Really, during the period of uh, of Japanese supremacy, Admiral Yamamoto had famously said, "I shall run wild for six months." And they hit Pearl Harbor, and they ran wild. And the Houston and this forlorn detachment, undergunned, you know, un- outnumbered, um, was swallowed up, uh, destroyed, and almost forgotten for the duration of the war. It sank. It, it's an incredible story. So, yeah, the, the, sh- the ship was sunk in uh, March 1942 off Java in a ferocious nighttime naval battle against Japanese warships. She took four torpedoes. If you want to sink a ship, you don't hit it with shells. That just fills them with air and sets them on fire. To sink a ship, you hit it with a torpedo. And the Houston took four huge torpedo hits and sank uh, very quickly. How and, many lives were lost? Uh, she had a crew of about, about 1,200 men. 468 made it to shore. So only a third. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and those guys came to envy the dead um, because what happened to them in captivity, uh, well, it's been represented in, in media and films such as uh, The Bridge and the River Kwai and so forth, but um, it's really unspeakable and almost unthinkable, the, the three-and-a-half-year ordeal they had in captivity. And so, you know, that, that ship um, stands for a number of things. It stands for gallantry against long odds, it, 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 but it also carries with it the ordeal of, 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 of the prisoner of war. And to be a POW of the Japanese was not a good thing. 
And how is that ship remembered today? Well, she was FDR's, one of, one of his favorites. He, he famously took a couple of world cruises in her. Um, he, made a, you know, he made her a famous ship. Um, and uh, so during the war, uh, you know, you'll find a lot of photography of him hoisting sharks from winches that he caught in the Galapagos Islands and so forth. Um, and so, you know, he had, a, he had a real romantic attachment to that ship. This city remembers the ship very fondly because it had been a major public campaign to get a cruiser named after the city which at the time, you know, 1930 was the second largest city in the country. Okay, so here's the thing. When you take a look at some of the ships during World War II that obviously saw battle but also were sunk, you talk about the Enterprise and and the... uh and a number of other of the big carriers, well, those, they've been renamed. There, there are carriers that came back as the Enterprise. There are carriers that came back as the Yorktown. Is there another Houston? Yes, there was. So, so after the ship was lost, uh, the city of Houston took this collectively personally, right? Um, there had been a major public campaign to get a Houston. When the Houston was lost, um, the, 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 the city staged a parade. Mayor Oscar Hol- Holcomb had, had staged a public campaign to get the Houston. And so the, the city kind of came back uh, for, a second, for a second effort. And uh, on, on Memorial Day 1942, there was a huge parade. Uh, uh, there were public officials giving speeches. Admirals came, and you know, basically, um, um, to remember the lost Houston on the occasion of Memorial Day, and also to rally the city for another to to, to petition the Navy to launch another Houston. And they did, which they did. Uh, she she came on about 18 months after this effort was launched, and so it made it somewhat awkward. Part of the campaign was to was to attract a thousand Houston volunteers. They called them. They they, they, want, they staged a recruiting drive as well, and so they wanted you know volunteers to come forward and and enlist, and fathers and sons came forward. A 53-year-old logger from East Texas came forward to enlist, and they wouldn't take him. So he said, okay, take my four sons, and they took them instead. But the delay between the recruitment drive and the commissioning of the new Houston meant that only one of these guys ended up on the new ship named Houston. And what happened to that ship? And and she had quite an ordeal herself. She was a, a fast, light cruiser. Um, CL-81 USS Houston joined uh, Admiral Halsey's carrier task forces as the war pushed forever west toward the, the Asian mainland and started striking Tokyo. And that ship was it was damaged heavily in an air attack uh, as well. So both ships kind of share uh, this this sort of, you know, in extremis um, ordeal in combat. And then it was decommissioned later on. And, and, and Houston was decommissioned. All these ships were sold to foreign navies after the war. It all happened. Yeah. Listen, yeah. <laughs> you, take a, you go to any foreign navy, with the exception perhaps of the Russians, uh, you'll find U.S. destroyers and, and not many battleships, but you'll see mm-hmm. U.S. destroyers, cruisers, patrol boats, fast frigates. It's amazing. That's right. The Falklands War was... Oh, the Belgrano. The Belgrano was the old USS Phoenix. And uh, No, actually, the Belgrano... No, the, oh, no, I have that wrong? No, the Belgrano was a British warship that the British gave to the Argentinians because the British had the blueprints for it. So when, when, the, when the war started, or the conflict started, the British had a Trident submarine in the area, and they knew exactly where to launch the torpedoes against that ship because they had the blueprints. They knew its weakest point. And, in fact, they did, and they sank it, and a lot of people died. And I'll never forget... The headline of the British newspapers the next day was because the ship was actually inside the three-mile limit when it was sunk. So the headline the next day in all the papers in London was Britannia waves the rules, <laughs> as, <laughs> as opposed yes. to, of course, Britannia rules the waves. Of, of, of course, this idea that, that war had to have rules uh, didn't really apply when the old USS Houston went down in 1942. You know, that, that was a modern invention, I think. <laughs> exactly. The, what, what rules? <laughs> what rules? What's the lesson that we've learned from the Houston fall? Boy, that's a great one. I, you know, I think if you're gonna if if you're gonna stage military force anywhere in the world, do it with conviction, and do it with backup, and do it with backup because otherwise, where are we sending our sons, our sons and brothers? The, you know, the, the one of the touching things to me about the aftermath 
of the ship's loss, you know, beyond the city's response, was the response of families who were, who would, especially the ones living on the West Coast, uh, who had access to shortwave radios, were, were listening to the Japanese propaganda broadcast for any evidence that their, that their son or loved one was still alive. And here and there, evidence would come. The Japanese did get a hold of some of these guys and put them on their broadcast. So, so you know, but, but the, their fate in captivity was simply horrendous. I mean, the, the bridge in the River Kwai was their fate. Uh, POW, uh, you know, servitude uh, under the, the Japanese lash in Burma and Thailand. And um, so th the, the price that they paid for this sort of, uh, uh, you know, half-hearted commitment to staging a naval squadron in the Western Pacific uh, should well be remembered today. You know, the U.S. had many lessons to learn uh, in World War II, starting, of course, with Pearl Harbor and then the Battle of Midway and then, of course, the loss of the Houston. So by the time of your next book that I'm reading now called The Fleet at Flood Tide, the subtitle of it is, you know, uh, America at Total War in the Pacific. All those lessons were applied. Well, that's right. And, and of course, the difference between 1941 and 1944 was as between night and day. The, 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 the surge in production that took place, in large part because of industrial maritime waterfronts such as the one we're in now in Houston, the whole, you know, yeah. any, any coastal industrial district became a naval center. The output of those yards, um, Brown Ship is a division of Brown and Root here in Houston, right. built hundreds of ships, not the sexy aircraft carriers and battleships, but the ships that really did the work destroyers, destroyer escorts, yeah. landing craft. And, and by 1944, the fleet at flood tide tells the story of the end game of the war. And, I, and my, but the end game was made possible really by the Battle of Midway. Well, that's right. The, 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 um, the Battle of Midway was the great victory where we sunk. The most decisive naval victory that I've ever heard. Sank four Japanese carriers, lost one of our own, and blunted the, the Japanese offensive momentum. Um, it's an epic. The whole story of the And Pacific the Japanese War, admiral went down with a ship, didn't he? Uh, well, well, a whole, yeah, everybody you know, did. well, Yamamoto eventually yeah. was killed in the, in the uh, South Pacific. Yeah, they shot him down. In an they? aerial ambush. They shot him that's down. That's right, thanks exactly. to our, uh, our, our code breakers. That's right. And uh, so it's just an incredible story of what, you know— and, and imagine, you know, we, we've been at war in the Middle East since 2001, you know, and um, to think that World War II unfolded in four years and that this country had the industrial capacity to ramp up so quickly. And the determination. The determination to see it through, the strategists to use the, all, those, all those tools of war to a conclusive effect. You know, it's, it's a stunning story. And people generally know very little about the Pacific campaign. And the Houston was on the, in the most obscured realm of the Pacific, uh, you know, fighting in Java and the Java Sea and Sunda Strait and these places that no Americans visit. You know, we, we go to Berlin, we go to Paris, we can appreciate what the what, what the Band of Brothers did, because we can walk the beach. Not there. I no. got it. <laughs> Jim Hornfisher, the author of Ship of Ghosts, the story of the USS Houston, and the book I'm reading now, The Fleet at Flood Tide, America at Total War in the Pacific, 1944-45. Thank you so much for joining us. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. 
everywhere I go, I try to I try to find a different, unusual museum uh, that might be a surprise. Yes, you'll hear me talk about the Louvre every once in a while, but what I really want to find out are some of the, the lesser-known museums that may have a more interesting story to tell. And my next guest certainly qualifies for that. She's the president and curator of the National Museum of Funeral History. Genevieve Keeney, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. I mean, I had until we did our research, I didn't know there was a museum of funeral history. So many people are in the same boat. Don't worry. Um, but you know what? Hopefully one day it'll be a wide world phenomenon and everyone will know about it. So many of my questions will be sort of devil's advocate because I'm coming from a position of not knowing. Okay? Right. Yes, please. Uh, so what would I see at this museum? I'm assuming coffins. Yes. Hey, lucky guess on my part. Okay. <laughs> But not just any coffins, right? Oh, no. We have an um, amazing uh, variety of coffins. Um, I and think it's really a, a, a museum that celebrates how we celebrate the dead. Um, it's basically how we go about putting on that ritual that the final know, show the final show yeah the final party if you will yeah. um the funeral i mean there's so many different ways that people put on funerals um based on their culture or their religion or just you know what it is that they're comfortable with and, and some of them we've seen in in, in yeah. popular culture the famous marching in new orleans for that for the funeral march right yes i spent some time in ghana so i know how they do those funerals which is wild oh yes and actually the museum has the largest collection of the Ghana coffins yes and Let's, let me explain what, what Genevieve is talking about. Let's say I'm expecting to die or my family knows that I'm about to die or people know me and I die in Ghana. Well, what do I, I'm, I'm the travel editor for CBS News. I fly a lot. It would not be unusual at that point for them to build for me a custom-made coffin that celebrates in the most visual way how I lived my life. Exactly. So in my case, they'd probably bury me literally in a 747. Yes. And actually, we have a KLM airplane on display. That's somebody, <laughs> so, that somebody was buried in. Well, no, they actually weren't buried in. Our, none of that our... That was the cast, art piece. That was yes, art that's piece. the art piece. But it is a piece of art. It is, yes. I mean, I've seen some of the wildest uh, creations. Oh, yes. Of, of, based on just how they live their life. And the talent of the artisans to craft these yeah. things are, is truly amazing. All right. So you've got those unusual coffins. Yes. But then there's the ceremonies themselves. Uh, yes. Um, we actually just talk about all the different types of funerals and customs from out around the world, as well as traditions that take place and have for hundreds of years. Well, I mean, it's going to sound silly to say, but it's absolutely correct. You know, the oldest profession might be prostitution, but it's followed quite by that, often by funeral directors. Uh, yes, they do say funeral directors uh, are the oldest profession. Um, ever since we've been born, we've been dying. So uh, we've been having to take care of our dead since the beginning of time. All right, when somebody comes to visit the museum, and how long has the museum been in op an operation? Actually, believe it or not, the museum has been right here in Houston for 26 years. A well-kept secret, i got to tell you. A very well-kept secret. So when somebody comes to the museum, what's the thing, the one thing that blows them away that they're not expecting to see? And, and also, what brings them there? I think. I mean, I mean devil's advocate question number yes. five. Who wakes up in the morning and goes, honey, pack up the kids. We're going to go to the funeral museum. Well, you see, that's part of my goal. That's what I want. I want people to say, <laughs> I want to get up and go to the funeral museum. That's on our plan. That's on our bucket list. Let's do it today. Um, but yeah, um, a lot of people not sure what to expect. So I think curiosity brings them in. Right. Um, but true enough, too, once they walk in, there are completely amazed they don't realize that there's so much there to see and you actually can get lost in time in the museum because we have no windows so before you know it it might be dark outside when you go to leave 
So for the claustrophobics out there. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. But the, it, it's really it's fascinating. Nine times out of ten, when people leave the museum, the common word is wow. We hear that all the time. It's like, I never knew you had that much stuff inside the museum. And it's just they're really captivated by it all. And it's all very well done. And if you're a history buff, you know, we definitely are the place you want to hang out for the day. Or if you're a car enthusiast, we have an amazing well, collection of purses. purses? That's yes. I was, I was getting to that. <laughs> because, you know, you go to certain museums, you see the presidential limos, or you go to, you know, you go to, El you go to Graceland, you see Elvis's car collection. Yes. But there is a collection of hearses. Yes, we, we have an amazing collection of hearses. We go, um, our oldest hearse is from the 1800s. Um, Horse-drawn, of horse course. Horse-drawn, of course. And then we come all the way forward to our uh, motorized hearse, uh, the one that recently carried the uh, the bodies of President Ronald Reagan and President Gerald Art Ford. Really? Yes. So. Wow. And, and, and I would assume, since we're here in Houston, pretty soon you might get George H.W. Uh, Bush. Uh, yes, we are actually currently working on an exhibition uh, to honor his life as well as Barbara's life. So we're wow. really excited to share that uh, with the city of Houston. And what makes, well, I mean, uh, silly question, a hearse is a hearse. In my, right? It's, I remember it as a stretch Cadillac. Mm -hmm. In many cases, right? Yes. With that rear door that came out that way, and, and you slid the, the coffin in and closed the door. Maybe there were some flowers in there. Maybe there weren't. But it, it's, it's a little more intricate than that. Oh, it's a lot more intricate. I mean, we have a, a, a very ornate, um, hand-carved, all-wood-paneled hearse. It's just an absolute gorgeous piece. And then we have our ambulance hearse combo, where you can see how it transitions from being an ambulance or being a hearse. Whoops. <laughs> patient <laughs> exactly. made it. No, patient didn't make it. <laughs> and we actually have, uh, you know, a, a Rolls-Royce hearse that actually was modified to be a hearse, but was originally a pickup truck. Of course it was. <laughs> you know, when I think of, well, just the subject of death and burial, so many people, including uh, my parents, although, although it wasn't really part of their generation, said, I don't want to be buried. I don't want a coffin. I just want to be cremated. They didn't want to spend the money on the coffin. I mean, it's, talk about a single-use item. Um, Correct. Right? I mean, <laughs> yes. it's, it's as bad as a wedding dress. It's like, it's like, I mean, when you think about it, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, but you've seen some of the most intricate, ornate, uh, beautifully handcrafted pieces of art, not just the Ghana coffins. I'm talking about just in the United States, just the, the, the inlaid wood and the, and, the, and the metal, right? Yes, definitely. I and mean, they're still making them. Oh, they still do. And yeah. by the way, you can even buy one at Costco. Yeah, they you sell can. them. They do. Right. <laughs> Interesting enough, yeah. Interesting enough. But I mean, I, I'm assuming, and, and I think my trends are right, that the number of coffins production is coming down as more and more people are asking to be cremated. Um, yes, and I mean, not so much, the, probably the, the use of them is going to start shifting. Um, you know, if you're still going to want to have a funeral, then of course you can still have a coffin uh, for the actual funeral. I should say, and I need to be corrected here, uh, it's a casket. Uh, there's actually a difference. Tell me, tell me. Intrigued, are you? Uh, yes, there is a difference between a coffin and a casket. A coffin is uh, more contoured to the shape of the body, and the lid comes off in its entirety. So most like, the, the, probably the most popular coffin you can uh, envision is Dracula's coffin, yes. um, but where a casket is rectangular in shape and is hinged like a door and only opens on one side. And it's actually comes from the French term casse, which is a jeweled box. And ah. we tend to keep items that are very dear and precious of value to us in our jewelry box. And we therefore put our loved one who is very dear to us in a casket. But we can also cremate a loved one. Yes, you but can. But there are different and forms of cremation now. Yes, there are. There is cremation by fire and cremation by water. Explain that. Which one? 
<laughs> the fire part I kind of got. You got that one, yes. Yeah. Okay. I was just making sure. Okay. Yeah, it's the water <laughs> one that I, that gets everyone. I love telling everybody that there's two forms of cremation. Um, the alkaline hydrolysis is what it's uh, called, um, and that is actually where they actually use water uh, to completely dissolve all the soft tissues of the human body. And once again, just like with fire, all that's left over are the bones. Wow. Yes. And yet there's now a, 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 an attempt being made, and I think they're doing it, to memorialize your loved one as a piece of jewelry. Yes, as a matter of fact, there are so many amazing things that you can do with your cremated remains that people don't realize. See, this is a travel show. We're talking about the final trip here. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, actually, interesting enough, since we're talking about a travel show, uh, my sister was cremated, and um, it's been 12 years. And the beautiful thing about that is that now I have been able to kind of bring her back into my life, and uh, she's traveled with me. Um, I took her to Switzerland, and she's currently being made into a diamond. Wow. Yes. <laughs> it, re it redefines uh, Jared's old entire marketing campaign. Exactly. I got my yes. sister back at Jared's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you can actually um, learn about all the interesting things that, the that you can do with cremated remains at the museum. So grandfather's ashes that are still on the mantle may have an afterlife. Yes, and you actually can incorporate them into your life. You can put them into a piece of art. Uh, you can turn them into a tree, perhaps, in your backyard. A, listen, uh, I have I live on a, on a boat in Los Angeles, and uh, at least once every three or four years, I'm asked to do this for families that are friends of mine, mm -hmm. and we literally go out and scatter the ashes. Oh, yes, scattering ashes at sea is very, very popular. Right. Um, but there's but, also a service years ago, which I thought was a little bit of a scam, that they'd launch you into space. Oh, no, that's not. It's true. Come on. Uh, yes, and actually, they're located here in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Where's actually, Milton? Uh, he's at uh, 60,000 feet. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, they're placed in a capsule. I had the distinct honor of assisting in uh, transferring ashes into the capsules that went to outer space. On and they're up there now? Uh, no, they actually come back. They do? Um, they, it's depending upon the different types of services that they offer. Um, the ones. When that, I die, by the way, I want to go so far, I don't want to come back. <laughs> well, they don't want space junk, so oh, okay. they, they, they come back to, to some degree. Um, Earth orbit, they tend to... Um, um, burn up back on re-entry. Okay, I've saved my craziest question for last. Oh, okay. I'm talking to Genevieve Keeney, the president and curator of National Museum of Funeral History. At the museum, is there a gift shop? Of course there is. I knew it. What's a museum without a gift shop? Okay, just tell me, what can I buy there? <laughs> the things that you normally can't buy anywhere else. Of course. Uh, um, you can actually get... Coffin key rings? Uh, uh, yes, we have coffin... Oh. Well, casket key rings. Oh, sorry. Casket we have a key. casket key ring, um, and we have an amazing um, line of any day above ground is a good one. I totally agree with that. What a, what a fitting moment to end this segment. Genevieve Keeney, again, the curator and president of the Museum of Funeral History right here in Houston. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hope I see you later. Yes, <laughs> Much <too>. later. <laughs> If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Every time I come to Houston, I have to take a, a step back because there's another building on the skyline. It's it's when I was first here, there wasn't much. Uh, I was here in 1972 working for Newsweek. We had a couple of uh, high-rise buildings. That was it. Now the building, especially in the downtown area, is exploding, and the hotel choices have, have changed. Um, in fact, some of the older hotels have been converted to condos now because 
they just needed to be converted. Now you got some new hotel bills like the Hotel Alessandra. Uh, joining me now, the general manager, Ryan Gullion. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good morning. I mean, tell me about this hotel because it's a surprise to me. I didn't even know about it. Okay. And then all of a sudden, boom, here you are. Right. Um, and, and right in the middle of where the whole action is. Absolutely. It's a new build. It is. Uh, we're part Which, of... by the way, is unusual in this part of the, of the, of the town. Right. Uh, we're part of a mixed-use development, Green Street, that's being redeveloped by our owners, the Midway Companies. Right. Uh, we're adjacent to the George R. Brown Convention Center, Minute Maid Park, and the Toyota Center. So it puts us in a really good location downtown. And what's different about the hotel? What did you build into this hotel that would be a surprise to people? I think the design, you know, we we try to transport people from their traveling experience, which let's face it, you know, in 2019 is not the most pleasurable experience. We try to create a serene environment through the use of natural light and color when they enter the building and are transported to the second floor to check in. We really hope that they transition from their traveling self to their, you know, more of a mindset of relaxation. Well, let's call it what it is. Most of the people, by the time they get to any front desk of a hotel, have been so abused by the flying experience that if you're just nice to them, they marry you. Absolutely. Uh, right? I mean... Yeah, we've, we've found that. Yeah. So, like, good evening. Oh! <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Just using their name. Yeah. You know, really uh, makes them happy. Well, name recognition and, and a calming, soothing voice without, uh, without telling you all the things you're not allowed to do. Correct. Right. So, I mean... What are the negative touch points that you were able to address in the design and the, and the operation of this hotel that deal with that? I think uh, one of the key points that we always focus on is the use of natural light. In our guest corridors, there's uh, windows at the end of each corridor. Corridors tend to be dark. Uh, we also make sure they're a little wider than normal with a higher ceiling. Uh, we did the same in the guest room. Our, our bathrooms are a little larger than usual. The, the bedroom's a little smaller, but we really focused on the on the the bathroom experience as far as the touch points the negative touch points one one... Uh, let me give you an example okay okay? i mean it's it's not about about uh, light Mm -hmm. although for me light is key i mean i hate hotels that trap me with mood lighting because it puts me in a bad mood i want to be able to control the lighting in my room for example okay you know don't give me a 40 watt bulb with an on-off switch, give me a 300-watt bulb, and I'll tune it down if I want, right? Absolutely. Because you want to be able to at least have the option of reading in your room or thinking in your room or, mm-hmm. you know, all that, right? But also, it's, it's, a, it's a sensibility that a lot of the airlines have lost, right? It's a sort of a nickel and diming thing of being, you have to charge for everything. Right. right? Everything short of breathing you charge for. What have you addressed in that? I think the biggest one is Wi-Fi. We yeah. do not charge for that. We do charge an upcharge if you want to stream. Want to, well, I'm sure that's, for that's fair. Use. That's fair. Um, that's a big area. Another area that we focused on with this hotel, we introduced the tablet system into the guest room where the guests can g- gain access to any hotel service. They can have their valet car brought up. They can order room service. They can book uh, an appointment in the spa. And at a time when so many hotels are either getting rid of room service or limiting it, you have 24 hour. Absolutely. And one of the neat things we did, we integrated that tablet system with a wireless watch system that the people that deliver that service are the guest requests are wirelessly transmitted to that watch immediately without the use of going through an operator or using a two-way radio, which can be disturbing to our guests when they're in the hallways or in the public space. So basically you got a countdown clock going. Yes. yes. I mean, you really do. Absolutely. And we actually, the managers have a monitor that monitors the requests, and if it exceeds a certain time, the screen starts flashing red, and then 
What's the time we're talking about? Five minutes. Five minutes to what? To acknowledge and complete the request. Okay. So, but a lot of times when you call a room service at a hotel, they'll say, we'll get it there within 40 minutes. Right. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, it can take us up to 40 minutes to deliver it, but we need to acknowledge and start the process within five minutes. Right. You, but guess. if it's over 40 minutes, you got a problem. Oh, that would be not acceptable. Not acceptable. Okay. The stopwatch is, is screaming at that point. Absolutely. What's the biggest surprise for guests when they, when they come in, other than the light? I think our location really lends itself to walking, and that's something that's very unique in Houston. Usually people see pedestrians, and they wonder what, what might be wrong with that person. Uh, it's like Los Angeles. Exactly. And we're in a location where you can, be, you can walk out our front door, and you can be at the House of Blues. You can have 15 different dining options within walking distance. And then we also have a Maserati that's available for use as a guest shuttle within five miles of the hotel. So we've actually been surprised how popular that is with our guests. Well, sure. They want to arrive in style. They want to arrive in style and have their picture taken and posted on Instagram. Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. If you just joined the show, I've been talking about how much Houston has changed and how such an explosive food scene, an art scene, a cultural explosion, uh, where people don't really think of Houston as being a cultural center. Well, guess what? News bulletin this just in. It is. Not to mention an experience center, whether it's, you know, some of the things that I love, like, you know, the Space Center in Houston, and then, of course, the museums. It's, it's just great. My next guest knows more about that than anybody because he's the author of 100 Things to Do in Houston Before You Die. <laughs> he's also written Lost Houston, Houston Then and Now, and a few others. Dylan Powell, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. So you heard my intro. I mean, it really has changed. It has changed so much. It has changed so much even just in the 20 years that I've been here. When I first came to Houston, um, and this goes back 47 years ago was when I first came, um, but even yesterday, I told people I was going to Houston, and they were saying, why? I'm like going, what do you have against Houston? Well, they've never been here, or they may have changed planes. That's the deal. People will tell you they've been to Chicago because they changed planes at O'Hare, or they've been to Houston because they changed planes at, at, you know, at Houston International, I mean, but no. That's true. That's true. I think um, one thing going against Houston in that respect is that there's no preconceived clear brand that you know people when you think about you're going to new york or you're going to london you sort of have a predisposed idea what that's going to be like but houston's always been a commerce center but how about this it's the fourth most populous city in the united states that's crazy right and they were all on i-10 this morning (laughs) (laughs) or 45 (laughs) or 45 45, my favorite interstate uh but you've been here how long about 20 years now all right so you've seen a lot of the changes I have. I have. My family is actually in the oil business. Uh, my father was a, an engineer and executive at a French oil company. And so uh, um, eventually everybody in the oil business lives in Houston. So that's how I got here. And I was just so going to stay. You're oil brat. Little, that's correct. That's correct. So I was just going to stay here for a little while. But it really, you know, a little while, like many people, it, just, it gets comfortable for All you. All right. So let's dispel a few myths, okay? <laughs> Nobody rides horses and wears cowboy hats. <laughs> well, not oh, unless, they have a they have a mean rodeo here. <laughs> not unless you're going to the rodeo, correct? Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, they take rodeo seriously here. They do indeed. They've um, you know kicked off with the chili cook-off. I'm actually uh, fortunate enough to have scored some tickets to go see George Strait on the 17th, so I'm super excited about that. But uh, rodeo is a heck of an experience if you haven't been for sure. Exactly. But the point is, it's beyond rodeo. It's beyond barbecue. It's everything. Now. That's correct. This is a major metropolitan center. You know, you know I think. If 
if you haven't been here and you haven't been to Texas, you know, I think a lot of people, especially on the on the East Coast, tend to think of everything west of Connecticut as being a cowboy country, you know, but uh, Houston's never really been a cowboy town. Uh, it's always been a sphere of commerce since it was started. And interestingly enough, when you think about a city that really didn't have a plan, they got some pretty amazing parks. They have some incredible parks. And nobody knows. No, and it's, you know, and it's, it's really very, uh, it's great forethought on the city planner's part because, you know, Houston. Wait, but that assumes they had city planners. Well, this is true. <laughs> Come on, let's let's call it what it is. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Commercial developers anyway. <laughs> right. But, you know, a, a city of this size, it's, it's not a very walkable city. Uh, very Everybody commutes. You know, there's a stretch of I-10 by my house that's 26 lanes across. Nobody walks. Nobody walks nobody here. If, if you find someone walking, they're in distress. You need to pull over and it's, ask it's, them if It's they like need help. Los Angeles. My mother is a Los Angeles native, and when she came to visit me about 25 years ago, she, uh, she said, I just, I just really want to walk around the neighborhoods where I grew up. I said, you want me to drop you here? Yeah. About 25 minutes later, I got a phone call from the, from the Beverly Hills police. They'd arrested her, or they'd taken her in because she was walking. <laughs> I understand. My wife and I decided to walk to the grocery store just for fun, and we had three people pull over to ask me if we needed help. <laughs> so, no, we have a house right here. We're just, we're just walking. You know? But yeah, so that was, it's great that there's so much park space. There's more than 50,000 square acres of park space here. We've got Terry Hershey out west. You've got the Buffalo Bayou Park downtown. And our own answer to Central Park Memorial Park, which is really fantastic. They're just redoing that uh, golf course in the center to be PGA level to have the Houston Open there. So Cool. And then here's the other thing about Houston that people don't realize. There are farms around here. <laughs> there are. Nobody, I mean, I mean, nobody knows that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, you know, Westheimer is actually technically a farm to market road, if you think about it. Yeah. But um, one of my favorites is uh, Froberg farm in Albin. I don't, have you been there? It's well, I, I know that farm because you get to pick your own stuff. You get to pick your own strawberries yeah. and citrus. It's fantastic. It's about 22 acres. Um, so you can go out there, you get a bucket, you get to pick your own strawberries. There's a little farmer's market out there. You can buy preserves and all kinds of produce and beef jerky and things like that. It's a really great way to spend a Saturday, especially in the spring. Now, when I was first here, if you really want a great barbecue, you had to go way out in the neighborhoods. Now you can find that anywhere. <laughs> There's a lot more than there used to be. That's, that's for sure. But one of my favorites, have you been to Killen's Barbecue? Yeah, I have. And Pearland? Yeah. yeah. If you can manage the weight, it's fantastic. <laughs> and there is a weight. You got you to know somebody to know somebody to, to beat that line. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Last time I was there, uh, I think it was the Houston Rockets just sort of cut in front of everybody, but we didn't care because we all like the Rockets. <laughs> yeah, now they just got to win some more. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, there is that. What's the, for people who've never been here before, or even friends of yours who come to visit, what's the biggest surprise that they're not counting on that's the biggest eye-opener? I think how eclectic and global the city is. I mean, I go to the grocery store. I live on the west side. I'll hear six languages, you know, Russian, Arabic, Mandarin. I think people don't foresee that. I think they envision something more akin to Oklahoma City or even Dallas. It's a very global city. And the secret bars? <laughs> the secret bars. Plenty of those around. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, there's more Freyla's if you're bringing a loved one. 2006 Peden over in River Oaks. Uh, Why? I'm not sure if you've been. Well, um, there's no sign. It's just a, an ambiguous. It's a speakeasy. It's a speakeasy. Um, you know, there's there's no sign. They'll, they'll let you in. Um, then upstairs, you've got couches. And um, and along that same line, there's uh, Last Concert Cafe. Are you trying to get me in a what, couches? That's the, that's the whole idea? <laughs> very dimly lit, very romantic place, you know. Yeah, last Concert's kind of the same way. There's no sign above the door, and you have to knock. The door is locked. That was actually, I don't know if you Is knew. there a secret knock? <laughs> there's not a secret knock, but there probably used to be, because everybody knows that that's the, that's 
the place you go, you have to knock before you get in. Um, but not everybody knows the history behind that. That was actually a bordello back in the day. And that's why they left the door locked. Uh, you'd had to knock to get in. And there's a, the restaurant's very small. Then you go in, there's a courtyard back there. That's where all the patios, and it's really fantastic in the spring. But that's where actually you used to dance with the people that you would want to be with. And it was a nickel a dance. And if uh, things went well, you'd go in the back room there. So. No, it was a nickel a dance. If things went well, the price went up. <laughs> exactly. We're talking to Dylan Fallow, the author of 100 Things to Do in Houston Before You Die, or in this case, Before You Dance. <laughs> Last question for you, because I always judge a city by this. Best place for breakfast? Oh, I'm going to say... Hugo's Sunday brunch is fantastic. I mean, and it's, but they serve it every day or just a Sunday brunch? Uh, well, they serve it on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, is what I, I've only been there on Saturday and Sunday. And I'll, I'll actually. Okay, so you Sunday save up favorite. for this one. Okay. Uh, you know, I think I remember paying somewhere in the area of 40 bucks, worth every penny, you know, plus it's fantastic. I had a rack of lamb, ceviche. Oh, man, it was just incredible. You had a rack of lamb ceviche? Well, uh, uh, a rack of a lamb rack and of ceviche. Comma, ceviche. <laughs> yeah. All right, you scared me there. <laughs> that would be a little scary. That would be a little wow. scary. I mean, I'd try it, you know. <laughs> but you'll eat anything. Dylan Powell. Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. There was, a, there was a line many years ago, I think it was by Gertrude Stein, who said, you know, there, anything west of the Hudson, there's no there there. Well, my next guest would dispute that. <laughs> he, he's with the Museum of Fine Arts right here in Houston. Before that, he was at the Getty in Los Angeles, and his name is David Bomford. David, there is there there. There really is, um, and the museum here in Houston is one of the best in the country, one of the best in the world. And under the category of who knew... Your European collection is unbelievable. Our European collection is great. Um, we have uh, masterpieces, but there's so much more to the museum than that. We have uh, fantastic modern contemporary works, Latin American collection, Islamic collection. Um, it's an extraordinary museum. But when I first lived in Houston, it wasn't even on the radar. It's, it's grown enormously in the last few years. Um, under the previous director, Peter Marzio, under the present director, Gary Tintero, the collection has absolutely blossomed. And uh, it's now uh, an, an incredibly impressive collection of about Seventy or 80,000 works. Not all on display at the same time. Not all on display, but um, the, the, the highlights are, are on display. If you go there any day of the week, you'll see fabulous things. Such as? Such as um, our European collection has the greatest Courbet in the world, uh, an extraordinary landscape called Augusta Wind. It, we've just bought a beautiful Goya. Um, the younger, the, the uh, older brother of the uh, little boy in red in the Metropolitan Museum. Of course. Uh, and um, just great things um, and extraordinary Islamic work. Works uh, in 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 the in our Mies van der Rohe building. Uh, the the museum is not only a great collection; it's also great architecture because we have the only museum building by Mies van der Rohe in America. We have Raphael Moneo, and we have extraordinary buildings by Stephen Hall being built right now. I mean, there you were at the Getty, an established organization with with a great pedigree, and they drew, they got you to come to Houston. I, I yes, I retired from the Getty, and I, I unretired to come to Houston, <laughs> uh, and it was a great pleasure to do so. Um, what was the biggest surprise to you about Houston? I think how dynamic. 
dynamic Houston is, how friendly Houston is. That's nothing to do with the museum. It just is a re- really friendly city. Um, but also um, how what incredible ambition the museum has. And, you know, we've, we, we've built a new art school. We've built a new conservation center. We're building a new modern contemporary building. And they are astonishing. And it's going to be one of the great um, um, museums in, in the world. And you've got a, a pretty big footprint. What, 14 acres? It's huge. It, uh, it, walking from one end of the campus to the other takes takes 15, 20 minutes. It's it's quite astonishing. Now, you have an exhibit opening up. It's already just opened uh, with, you know, Van Gogh. It, it's about to open, and, yes. Uh, Van Gogh, I have to say. If well, right. if, 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 you're, if you're here, you say Van Gogh. If you're me, you say Van Gogh. If you're uh, in the Netherlands, you say Van Gogh. <laughs> <laughs> you take your choice. Right. But, I mean, that's going to be a big exhibit. It, it's um, it's um, probably the best, uh, greatest Van Gogh exhibition which this part of the world has ever seen. Um, and um, we have had the uh, wonderful experience of collaborating with the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Krola Muller Museum in Oslo in the Netherlands, and we've had, uh, you know, the pick of their collections. In their now, there's so many misconceptions about him. I mean, especially, you know, his reasons, his, his approach, the layers. I think, I think one of the surprises um, is, is how short his career was. Um, he, he only really became an artist at the age of 27, and his career was less than a decade. All those... Whoa, yep, I did not know. By 37, he was dead. Um, so he killed by, you know, he shot himself in Auvers-sur-Oise. And um, so less than 10 years for all those amazing works of art that we know so well. Any new ones that we don't know? Um, occasionally, drawings will come to light. I think we know most of the paintings. We know all the paintings. But occasionally, a drawing which um, has lain in the, um, in, in, in the storage part of a museum is reattributed to Van Gogh. We have one of those in the, in the exhibition, um, one of his drawings of Montmartre, which um, has been re- given back to him, and we're showing it alongside the painting for which it was the study. You know, we were just over in, in Cairo looking at the, the brand-new museum that's going to be opening up in next year, actually, called the Grand Egyptian Museum. And what was fascinating to me about that museum wasn't all the stuff that they're going to show. It's all the stuff that they're busy restoring. Absolutely. Those conservation rooms, they have something like 17 of them. Uh, and I was able to go there through with their director. It was the most amazing tour I've taken in a museum in my life. Uh, you're doing a lot of conservation work here. Well, we've just opened, um, just a few months ago, a brand new conservation center, 35,000 square feet, um, with studios, with laboratories, with uh, uh, x-ray suites, and so on. Uh, it is uh, one of the best you'll see anywhere. And we have um, getting on for 20 conservators who are working on the collection. and Like, what would they be doing? Doing, for an example like today, what, what would they be working on? Yeah, I mean, uh, they may be cleaning a painting. Uh, they may be uh, repairing an Islamic ceramic, you know, several hundred years old. They may be cleaning a bronze, which is going in our outdoor sculpture garden. Uh, but also they study scientifically all the works of art to see how they're made and, uh, and uh, how the um, artist uh, constructed them originally. Will you be using that not just for the museum but for other museums as well? Occasionally we do. I mean, we, our collection is big enough to occupy us pretty much full time. <laughs> but uh, uh, if, we, if we have a... As an area of expertise, I would think. Exactly. If we have a question from another museum, we, we certainly do our best to help, yes. Having been here for nearly seven years, what's the biggest surprise collection you have? 
in, uh, in, in our museum. Yeah. Um, I think I, I knew very little about uh, how wonderful the Islamic collection was, how extraordinary the Latin American collection is. Um, it is the greatest Latin American uh, 20th century collection outside uh, Latin America itself. Um, and uh, we're acquiring uh, amazing works of art in that area uh, alone um, o- almost every month. So it is, it is a, a, an extraordinary thing to see. There are so many museums that are known for an individual piece. You know, I, I, I always laugh. I make, I make fun of my friends. I say, you know, the reason why you go to France is because you're all failed art history majors and then you stand in line at the Louvre for 10 hours you come out an hour later going it's so small because <laughs> that's the Mona Lisa okay or you go to the Rembrandt Museum of course that was that's not small at all the Night Watch it's like staggering all right what's the one piece here that that is, is def- if at all defines your museum well our, our collection is, is sort of broadly excellent so so we have we have well, a, excuse me yeah, no 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 it, 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 it's it's tremendous and and we have a huge number of really fine works of art I, I suppose my favorite work of art in the European collection is um, a beautiful Rembrandt or a portrait of a young woman which he made in 1633 which is when he was at the height of his powers and it is the most stunningly beautiful picture. because and, and it's just gorgeous and, and it's Rembrandt at his very best light is so key to anything yes um, to your daily life that matter but in a museum especially yes you pay particular attention to that. We, we uh, light is our friend and our enemy, um, because we we need wonderful daylight, which we have here in Houston, to see works of art at their at their best. But on the other hand, it does deteriorate works of art if it's not controlled properly. So uh, a lot of the work we do is keeping the conditions in all the galleries perfect, uh, both in light and in temperature and humidity. I'm assuming there's some works that you have to remove from time to time just because you're worried about them. Works on paper and textiles have to be rotated so that they can never be shown for more than perhaps three or four months at a time. Then we we rest them and then we we bring others out to take their place. I like the way you say that. Where's that Rembrandt? Oh, it's resting. (laughs) The the Rembrandt we can (laughs) keep up all the time. um, but some, some of the other things do have to rest, as you say. For people who are visiting the museum for the first time, yeah. what's their biggest surprise? I think um, how big it is, how um, wide-ranging the, the collection is, um, and um, just architecturally how um, thrilling it is. Uh, when you walk from the Mies van der Rohe building to the Raphael Monet building through the Tyrell Tunnel, Tyrell being a light artist, um, uh, people are, are absolutely ecstatic about See, that. See, we don't have just naming rights for stadiums. We have naming rights for tunnels at museums. We do, we do. And um, James Terrell, who's a Californian artist, yeah. um, and uh, he, he makes these amazing light installations, and we have one permanently there. Amazing. David Bumper, I mean, Houston is full of surprises, but your collection is one of the best. It is. Um, at the moment, uh, with Van Gogh um, up in the galleries, um, is a great time to visit. So... Van Gogh is on from uh, March the 10th until June the 27th. So Perfect. It would be a great time to visit. Thank you again, sir. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Uh, joining me now, the executive chef here at the Hotel Alessandra, Jose Hernandez. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, now, you're originally from Mexico City. Yes, I am. Which, by the way, has... People don't understand Mexican food. I, I, I have to tell you, we spent so much time there on some of the shows that we do. It is world-class. It is uh, UNESCO World Heritage quality food. It's not a tortilla 
or 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 or, or you know or a burrito. We're talking serious. So people have the wrong idea of of Mexican food. It's 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 amazing, right? That's and, correct. And you've been able to incorporate some of that here. Yes. What have you done? Uh, mo- mostly what I know, I learned in Mexico City. So I learned in uh, really nice kitchens over there with uh, two of the master chefs of friends. One of them, he just passed away a couple years ago, two, three years ago, about cancer, brain cancer. Uh, but he was one of the, uh, like, mind masters yeah, yeah. In, in the kitchen. Uh, all, all the food that we make here in the hotel is uh, mostly French techniques. Really? Yeah. And that's the influence that you had from him? Yes. It, the, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, my the favorite food that I found in Mexico, uh, quite by accident, is almejas chocolates. The, 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 the chocolate clams, the brown clams that they, that they grill. Okay. That's unbelievable. But here, it's interesting. Here we are in Houston, and you're doing essentially a French restaurant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, my, my dream in, in the future is, is going to be to open a, a Mexican restaurant on my own. Uh, but for now, uh, since I know French uh, cuisine and French techniques, I've been working in uh, mostly French restaurants here in the United States. So what would you say the restaurant here would be your signature dish? It's two dishes that I didn't move from the menu since we start, and just because the people, they, they, they keep asking for that. One is the crepe souffle. We take it from this. I used to be a pastry chef before. Ah, so, okay, the secrets uh, revealed. Okay. <laughs> uh, I used to make a passion fruit crepe souffle that I turned it into a cauliflower. The first one, it was a cauliflower crepe souffle. And right now, the current menu is um, artichokes, uh, creme souffle. And how do you make that? Um, it's just a puffy, like like the same technique that you make the souffle, but you you cook it in the uh, saute pan, and you fold it like a kind of like empanada. You fill it out with a, a mix. So it's an artichoke empanada. <laughs> Basically, but puffy. Uh, and we serve it with a, a mornay sauce, that is a cheesy sauce made with the raclette cheese. And serve with the shaving uh, truffles. Let me give you my history of food in Houston. I was a correspondent here for Newsweek back in 1972. And back in 1972, the only food you could find in Houston, uh, my office was on, 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 um, on Milam Street. Uh, it was the old Tenneco building. And the only place that was open for lunch was the coffee shop at Foley's. And then if you wanted any kind of decent food, it was very traditional, you know, prime rib and potato. And then if you went out to the neighborhoods, maybe you could find some decent barbecue. That was, wow, have things changed, right? A lot of changes. You can find, in every single corner, you can find a really nice restaurant here. In 1972, nobody said artichoke. It wasn't in the vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) Or souffle, or crepe. No, No, but we we are lucky that we have uh, many two restaurants here in Houston that uh, you can find pretty much close to your neighborhood. Now, is there one thing you had on the menu? I always ask the like the chefs this. I always like to ask the chef this, that you thought was going to be great, and nobody ordered it. Uh, one of the things that I put in the menu, and everybody was talking about, it was the lamb tartare. But the people, the the guests that were coming to the to the restaurant, they didn't take it that so way. So lamb tartare didn't last long on the menu. Uh, it lasts two seasons, uh, <laughs> six months. It struggled. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And what was the one thing you put on the menu that you figured nobody's going to order this and everybody loved it? Uh, the crudite salad. Which is? Uh, that's a raw vegetables. All mini. Keep uh, it simple. Uh, raw vegetables. Yeah. Nothing cooked. Uh, yes. And it, when, when push comes to shove, just get raw and you can't lose. No, that's right. It's, it's basics. It's back to the basics. The lamb tartare is raw, and they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> lamb tartare, would, I, I would have difficulty with that. That right. was just me. But back when I first came to Houston, they had no tartare. There was nothing. So it's, 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 it's better than it was, trust me. All right. Uh, but go for the, for the artichoke souffle. So the artichoke souffle, like I'm saying, in the beginning we start with the cauliflower, roasted cauliflower. And it works. And it works. Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tokyo. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Uh, I used to live in Houston many, many years ago at a time when hotels like this didn't exist, uh, where buildings in Houston like this didn't exist, where transportation in Houston like this didn't exist, but a lot of things didn't exist, but there was still a lot of history here. Some of it unknown, undiscovered, or not embraced by a lot of people. That's changing, all because of something called Preservation Houston. My next guest is the program's director for them. He's been around for 10 years, but they've been around since 1978. Jim Parsons, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I remember, I'll I'll give you an example of of history here in Houston. Uh, When I was here, this goes back to 1972, the mayor was Louis Welch. Mm -hmm. And he was also not just the mayor, he's a very wealthy guy in private. Right. And the Houston Opera had run out of money. And all the people who were the big supporters didn't know what to do because if they couldn't raise the money, they'd have no season, they'd have no opera. So they went to the mayor and they said, Mr. Mayor, we're not only appealing to you as the mayor, but as a private citizen who has some deep pockets, could you please save the opera? We need money. Uh, and, he, and he looked at him and he said, well, I'll do it on one condition. He says, I'll, uh, I'll give you the money if I don't have to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's, the, a, that's quite a bargain. And guess what? They made the deal, and the Houston Opera is bigger than ever. Well, it's, there you go. It's back. You have to do what it takes. But in terms of the neighborhoods, in terms of the districts, in terms of, of the stories that they tell, that's where you guys come in to preserve that. Well, that is what we try to do. And we're not your typical preservation organization necessarily because Houston is not really your typical city. We don't actually go out and you know fix up buildings. We don't own property, but we do work with the people who own the historic buildings and live in the historic neighborhoods. To who, try to save them. Absolutely. We want to make, it, make sure that it's as easy for them as possible to do the right thing preservation-wise. Because people are always saying, and I, I'm the first person to tell them they're incorrect because I used to live here, Houston has no history. Right, and, and Houston has a rich history, but it's just the kind of city that hasn't always, you know, looked back. Houston's always has a step in the in, in the future, and, and Houston's always looking forward, and, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess. I mean, the city's really been around as we would know it since, like, the 1840s. Right, 1836. Okay. Uh, but the thing that a lot of people don't realize is up until about World War II, it, Houston was a small city. We yeah. were kind of a regionally important city. You were a we depot. Had, you were we, a we, depot. We were a depot. We had some oil. You know, yeah. we had some, some, some rich people who kind of kept a low profile. And then, you know, something, something changed and a, a switch flipped. And uh, after the war, we just boomed. So, yeah. so Houston, as we know it, is a pretty new invention. It is. And in fact, there's so much history just on the Houston ship uh, channel. Oh, sure. Yeah. We, you know, uh, many people don't realize Houston's a port, one of the biggest ports in the world. We shouldn't be a port because we're 50 miles from the ocean. But uh, the, the businessmen of Houston 100 years ago decided they would build a ship channel and build an inland port, which makes no sense. But uh, they did it. They did it. I remember one summer I was here. It was so hot. I was burning so much. I got in my car. I'm an East Coast guy, right? So I yeah. got in my car and I said, okay, 
I'm going to find water. I'm just going to head south until I find the ocean. So I got on I-45, and I drove south, and then I got to Galveston. And I took one look at that beach and one look at that water. I never got out of the car. Yeah, well. Wait, I turned around. And I said, but i got to get on the water. So I ended up at the USS San Jacinto, oh, sure. the battleship, because it was on the water. Right. I, and, and I said, okay, I've been on the water. And then I came racing back to Houston in those days, which didn't have tunnels and bridges and, and, and the air conditioning that we needed. I went right to the gallery and hung out by the ice skating rink because it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> those days have changed. That's the beauty of Houston. You can go from the beach to the ice skating rink in, in an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I mean, those days have changed. The, the, the beach is not necessarily any prettier than it was back no, then. No, I, but, but, <laughs> I know, I know. However, Houston's gotten a whole lot prettier. Well, it has gotten a lot prettier. And that's, that's I think, you, you know, Houston had sort of this, this haphazard pattern of development where we would build over here, we would build over there as more people came in. You didn't in. have a plan. We, there was no, there's never been a plan. Yeah. But as a result of that, we have some open space in the heart of the city that can be transformed. So, so one of the big projects that's happened recently is the Buffalo Bayou Park that runs right through the middle of town. You know, uh, other cities can't do that because they're completely built up and they don't have the space to do a major park like and, that. And strangely enough, one of the cool places is the Glenwood Cemetery. Oh, absolutely. Glenwood's great. And and I'm a cemetery buff, so I like going to cemeteries in any city. But Glenwood is like a walk through Houston's history. Well, the reason why, the reason why I like to go to cemeteries, especially the really old ones, mm-hmm. is because the gravestones in the old days actually told the story. Oh, they did. I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, 1908 to 1947. It was, he was hanging on the window, then he slipped for two <laughs> They would chisel in the whole story, and then he, le- and then he, then he died. Well, you know? know, they had more time back then. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you know who the most famous person in uh, Glenwood is? No. Howard Hughes. You know what? I do know that. You know why? why that, that was my cover story for Newsweek. No kidding. I was my cover. I was here when he died. I was here when they brought him off the plane from Mexico. Yeah. I was at Methodist Hospital in the morgue. Sure. I then went to uh, the funeral home. It was right out by the Galleria in yeah. those days. I still have a note from the family thanking me for showing up when I was supposed. To, I wasn't supposed to be there. Wow. Oh yeah. And the crazy thing was the assistant medical examiner who did the autopsy on him because nobody was getting information on a guy who nobody even seen what he looked like. Right? right. We got it. You know why? I lucked out because she had done her internship and residency under my dad in New York. Wow. And two scotches into her, <laughs> and I got the story. <laughs> Talk about preservation. Sense. There you go. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 